Welcome to the podcast Beyond the Triangle. I'm Amy Beth Horman, and this is episode eight, entitled Relationship Goals, Your Private Instructor. This episode will be the first in my Relationship Goals series, which focuses on improving the parents' relationships with crucial entities in your young artist's life. Episode 8 and 9 will detail the importance of the relationship with the private instructor for both child and parent, and focus on ways we can nurture and maintain it for a lifelong connection. Episode 8 will center on the basics of the relationship as I see them to get you started on the right foot. And then episode nine will be devoted to talking about common conflicts surrounding trust, expectations, and the ins and outs of switching studios. As usual, I'm going to give you real talk from all the perspectives, student, teacher, adjudicator, and parent. I'm so thrilled with the feedback I've received from so many of you about the Primer episodes and how they're helping you already. These next episodes, as I said, will focus all on relationships, relationships with our private teachers, our collaborative pianists, event coordinators for arts organizations, even your youth orchestra director or school orchestra teacher. Part of the reason I started this podcast was to try and get out how important these many facets are to a young artist and what a parent can do to foster them to influence their child's training and success. It is my belief that to really better the path of a young artist, you have to be willing to examine more than just the three sides of the triangle, parent, child, and teacher, but you must consider many more relationships, leading to many sides of the equation. Many of the entities I just listed are related, share friends in common, or have worked together before, proving over and over again how small the music world really is. It is for this reason that we must take a thoughtful look at the parent's role and each of these interesting dynamics so that we can be contributing only in a good way to our child's training and progress. Since I believe the private instructor is the most crucial relationship and can have a pivotal effect on all of the others, I will be starting with that relationship today. As you know, this podcast is focused on pre-college training, so I will be centering this podcast on what occurs inside the relationship between a student and their teacher while embarking on advanced literature with them. As parents select their child's advanced music teacher, they are usually very excited to enter a new chapter of training. Sometimes we are fortunate and can stay with our beginning teachers for the duration, but most times parents find they need to switch to a more advanced teacher as they enter virtuosic literature. And most will stay a few years, if not several years, until they enter college or conservatory. Of course, there are many schools of thought on this. Some people believe you should only remain with a teacher a few years to receive what they have to give and then change studios for a fresh approach. I personally believe this may be more pertinent in the later years, more aligned with artist diploma level training. But in my opinion, you can stay with your advanced instructor for many years or as long as the relationship is working. And this last point is sometimes a clincher because at a certain point, Sometimes the relationship is no longer viable, and people should move on. 
But there are two sides to that, as there are for any relationship. So there can be a multitude of reasons why the relationship is failing. Or maybe I should say flailing. As a student, I was very fortunate in that I had an excellent Suzuki teacher, Patty Hurd. She was perfect for my family. And when she felt it was time for me to receive more advanced instruction, she informed my parents of this and aided us in identifying my next teacher, Jody Gatwood. That switch was very hard for me, as I'd become extremely attached to her. But once I acclimated to Mr. Gatwood's studio, he became the most influential of my instructors for my advanced technique, and also for my work ethic as a young musician. He was also fully supportive of my move to Paris, and wrote me regularly, as we had no email at the time. We are all still in touch in some way, shape, or form to this day, so I have maintained these relationships over many years, and I've reaped such benefits from it. My parents assisted in this, not just by keeping in touch with these musicians themselves, but by their behavior in and out of lessons for years. My father still regularly runs into my Suzuki teacher and has a chat now and then, and I'm now sending videos of my daughter Ava to Mr. Gatwood. As I have now recently become a studio mom, I've started thinking again about the importance of this relationship as it pertains to Ava and her love for her new teacher, Davis Law. I realize the deep attachment she's forming, and I have a newfound sense of responsibility for it. I want to keep it intact for as long as she is playing violin, which I hope is forever. She's learning how to truly express herself with the violin, with him leading her in all the right directions. This is a relationship of deep trust and commitment, and it will model many relationships she has in the future. I'm watching her try out emotions on her violin in front of him, taking risks at every lesson, building trust between them. I can relate to this process because I remember these feelings myself from when I was a young girl. While I know theirs will not be the last student and teacher relationship Ava has, I, knew it, I know that it has set the bar high, and I'm so grateful every day we walk into his studio for the warm, thoughtful, and incredibly rich musical space he has created. And as an aside, it hasn't been easy for me to let someone else take the lead with Ava's training. I get asked about this a lot. And I imagine it hasn't been easy for him either. We haven't spoken about it very much, but we have touched on it a little now that we've been working together for over a year. It's been an amazing year, and we have found our way, and she's thriving. Some of our words I'll keep to myself, but the gist of it is that we were both a little nervous headed into this relationship, and for good reason. Ava is, I like to think, a great student, but he knew I was a teacher as we walked in, and I know he wondered how that would go. I wondered the same, but I knew in my gut that it was the right move for Ava and our family. I needed to create some separation and let her have a relationship with a teacher who was not also mom, and she was ready for that. Entrusting someone else with Ava's development was a huge decision, but with a referral to Mr. Law coming from one of my closest friends and another professional musician, I felt confident we were headed in the right direction. I think all parents head into this important partnership with their advanced instructor 
with the absolute best of intentions. And as they walk in, my feeling is that they are certainly willing to place trust in a professional to lead the way. But there are certainly bumps along the way. I had the distinct privilege of talking to many teachers in the past few weeks, and I've gathered their thoughts. It was quite the process for me as I found out exactly how many thoughts and experiences we have in common. It just renewed my determination to share things on this podcast because I truly believe that it will benefit all of us. First, let's go over some basics and etiquette, which will probably come across as obvious, but since I heard about them so often in talking to other professors, I'm going to mention them here just in case. Even if these things hit you as obvious at first, please listen to them, because I think sometimes we become very familiar with our private teachers over the years, and we need a tiny refresher course on a few things to get the balance back. It could make all the difference. In any case, I believe trouble over these issues of etiquette can be easily avoided, and in most cases, it is just common sense. So first up, let's talk about punctuality and how we arrive and how we leave our lessons. I've had kids arrive more than 15 minutes early and stay the same amount past their lesson time. You might think this is nothing or maybe just due to traffic, and I also know that earlier is better than later for arrival times, but the fact is this interrupts the lesson before and sometimes workflow is really crucial at this level. And it also eats into the next lesson. Especially for younger students, that doorbell or knowing someone else is in the space, even in the next room, it's going to change their energy somewhat. And I will have to really get them to focus back. I simply cannot count how many times it has taken me almost a half hour to get a kid to really understand something conceptually and their focus is all primed and ready to apply it to their piece. And then we hear the doorbell. If this happens in the last five minutes in their lesson, this is fine, of course, maybe even par for the course. But in the last 15 minutes, it feels like a real interruption, and that is their paid time. Here's what I suggest for parents regarding punctuality. Ask your teacher if they have a waiting area, and ask if it's okay to arrive more than five minutes early, or if that will be an intrusion. From talking to a handful of teachers, some teachers feel differently about this than others. When Ava and I arrive at her teacher's house, we wait until it is five minutes before lesson time, and then we ring the house bell. We then wait downstairs until he calls us up. Sometimes this means we might wait inside a car or just stand outside for a few minutes, but I'm choosing to be mindful of when I enter his home because I know that it interrupts the workflow for the child before us. On the subject of lessons running a bit too late, sometimes teachers are finding that parents will inadvertently run them a bit ragged with extra requests right at the end of the lesson. This is a touchy one, but it's something that, again, every teacher mentioned to me. I think this stems sometimes from a well-intentioned place, But often as we are wrapping up lessons, there are these extra requests that are thrown at us and very little time to deal with any of it. This in turn feels like we're being asked to work overtime or extend our hours completely when really these things could be put in an email. 
I also know certain teachers who only deal with extra requests on certain days because of their schedule. And so they felt like these requests weren't made in that allotted time and sometimes were thrown in the ends of lessons instead. Tasks thrown in at the last minute are usually just due to poor planning. And I know as a mom that there are a thousand micro schedules being attended to. Some things just fall through the cracks. But if you wait until the end of the lesson and you leave very little time for us to do recommendation letters or sign documents or whatever the task may be, we're going to see our whole teaching day run over. I had wonderful students sending things over early, emailing their needs for letters weeks ahead of time, even reminding me the week it was due. I really appreciated this. It was really helpful because I had dozens of students to keep track of. My suggestion is to keep extra requests for the beginning of the lessons. This is squarely in your paid time with your instructor, or even better, write them ahead of time as I suggested and give them a heads up that you'll need to talk about X, Y, and Z. This way, if it involves, say, looking up an extra part or pulling a score from a library, your teacher can choose to make that time and do it beforehand. I actually just had this discussion with Ava's teacher asking if we could make time to talk about something, and we scheduled a time to talk by phone according to his schedule. This seems a decent tie-in to my next one on the list, which has to do with communications from parents. So maybe you're the parent that doesn't want to interrupt the flow in the middle of the lesson or at the end of the lesson, so you send that email or text. But sometimes teachers are receiving texts or seemingly emergent emails at night or during their time off. I know I have my share of things that slip by me as a studio parent, and sometimes I try and deal with an issue over scheduling or meeting a deadline late at night after the kids have gone to bed. But this is not a great time to text a teacher. They have families too, and they need their time off so that they can fill up their energy tanks for your next lesson. It's fine to email at any time, but you can't expect a response back. Not until work hours. I think the teachers who have allotted certain days for communications are really on to something, so I enjoyed talking to them about this. Eventually, families figured out how to arrange their questions or needs around those times. If you have the need to discuss something with your teacher and it will take longer than a minute, learn to ask when would be a good time for them to be able to talk about this. High-level teachers are working constantly, But if you're catching them as they're carpooling their kids to something and they aren't in the right frame of mind, you aren't going to get the answers that you're looking for. You're going to want them to be able to focus and give solid advice. So ask when the right time would be for you to discuss something with them. And lastly, on the subject of communication, I know this will come as a surprise to many of you, but it seems that some parents are communicating or requesting things during vacations or even hospital stays. This has happened to me, and almost every teacher I know has had this happen to them in one shape or form. I had parents trying to contact me during the birth of my first daughter, even after I specifically told them by email that I was headed to the hospital and therefore on maternity leave. Sometimes I think when we communicate as teachers that we are headed on vacation or on leave for any amount of time, it triggers a bit of panic in parents. And I understand that 
Maybe some people might even see this as a compliment. It shows that parents see the relationship as important and that deep down they know they can't quite do things without you. But when a parent has trespassed like this on time off, or especially something like a maternity leave, they're acting on impulse and they're acting out of fear. Those actions last a lot longer than the impulse did because it stays with the relationship and on the teacher's mind far longer than you might think. A great teacher will try and prepare beautifully for a vacation or a break. They'll make plans for you, leave you with things to inspire you, sometimes even provide an assistant for you while they're gone. If you feel you might need additional instruction while they're gone, just ask. Some teachers I know are very open to this, but will want to select the teacher who's helping you while they're gone. I was never gone for more than a few weeks, but if I had been, I would have recommended someone in my place. In my studio, there was constant strategic prep going on for auditions and performances, and in my opinion, there needed to be scaffolding by a teacher to meet those deadlines all the time. If you feel there isn't enough preparation happening before times of absence, take initiative and ask by email. Then expect that some of the next lesson time might be spent preparing in this way for their absence by assigning extra materials or setting goals. Some teachers will do this in their free time as well, but they're not obligated to do so. I've done both. It depends on my schedule with my family around that time. I really prefer to do prep like this on my off hours even though it's unpaid, but just like everyone else, sometimes life just doesn't allow for things after work hours. All of the teachers I spoke to say that they need a little personal space, both for their free time and also in their actual residences for those of them that are teaching privately in their homes. So let's talk just a little bit about personal space and respecting privacy. When you're in someone else's house, you can get a bit too comfortable over time. So just keep in mind that walking into other rooms or allowing siblings to wander around can really invade a person's sense of privacy. Some spaces on busy weeks might not be tidy or could have personal papers out. Teachers who teach out of their homes generally do so for the sake of their family life. I know this is why I chose to do it for many years. I simply didn't want to miss seeing my children as they were small while I was working such long hours. It's a really hard decision to make, but it is an easy one for other parents to empathize with. So it always meant a lot to me when I noticed somebody making an effort to respect the private areas of my house. Now let's talk about comportment in the actual lesson itself. One of the hot topics that came up in talking with my colleagues was interrupting or the parents' attendance in lessons. I have had many parents choose to stay during their child's lessons, even as they become teenagers. But it turns out I know plenty of teachers who don't allow this. Sometimes I think it can be helpful, so I do allow it, but on a case-by-case basis. If the child is not comfortable with a parent in lessons, I will ask them to leave. If I feel the parent is infusing too much tension in the room for me to work in the way I want or for the child to be relaxed, I will also ask them to step out. But every person I've spoken to who teaches has similar pet peeves about parents in the lesson. When we're explaining something, it is really necessary for the flow of communication to remain uninterrupted. So interrupting by a parent is a big no-no. 
Once the communication has been received and responded to by the student, there is a little room for comments sometimes, but even then, I would keep comments to a minimum in high-level training. It breaks up the flow of learning, and while it might ease a parent's mind, it doesn't serve the student most of the time. One way to work well with high-level teachers, if you are still sitting in on the lessons, is to ask them directly where they would like you to be. You will see from their answer how involved they would like you to be in that lesson. Some will have you in the adjacent room where you can still see and hear. Others will have you right there next to them, taking notes or taking videos to play later. The main point I'm making is that you should consider it a privilege to be allowed in your child's high-level training because some teachers do not allow this. And because you are in their workspace, it is a good idea to ask them what they would prefer in terms of where you sit or how you interact. As for the kids, we need kids to be present, rested, quiet when we are talking, and with all their materials organized. I personally have a huge issue with kids plucking or playing with their left hand while I'm trying to explain something. Also, when I'm demonstrating, I need them to be looking at what I'm trying to show them. So this comes up a lot. Rest position is still very useful for middle schoolers, I think, because it helps them to stay quiet and focus on what you are saying. It's also surprising how many kids show up without their materials in hand. I don't have extra copies of everything, and it's an issue of accountability, which I think needs to be addressed very early on. But when you're training at a high level, I suggest parents have kids pack their own bags and then double check them. Because for example, I want Ava to know that she has to be responsible for her music, but I also don't want to forfeit a whole lesson on something just to teach her this important lesson about packing. So usually I check what she has packed without her even knowing. So parents, if you're allowing your kid to arrive without materials repeatedly or with messy papers, unorganized, your teacher is going to get frustrated with you eventually. It's only a matter of time because they're just not able to do their job as well without those materials. Let's talk a little bit about scheduling and rescheduling. I know instantly how much someone prioritizes my time with their child by how much they need to reschedule it. This would be the same for personal relationships too, right? It's usually an utter nightmare to get everyone scheduled at the beginning of the school year. It is in fact the thing I dread the most as a teacher. I want to think that parents understand this, but I think they only really can understand the surface of it. We try really hard to schedule for everyone's benefit, but there's a lot that goes into scheduling on our end that sometimes people don't see. I won't schedule my student on the Brahms Concerto for a day where I know I am busy in the hours leading right up to it. I'm just too tired. I also won't put them after a beginner student because my mind isn't in the right place and it can wreck or complicate scheduling with a pianist later on for in-lesson training. I try and put similar teaching back to back so that there is some flow to my teaching and the pianist can be booked for a few hours to make his trip worthwhile. Sometimes, as hard as I try, I cannot achieve this. So I just do my best. But if I can achieve this, it is easier on everyone and the teaching is better. 
So when we achieve that amazing feat of having scheduled everyone to the best of our ability, it is really hard on us to have to then reschedule things. Most teachers I know have a lot of trouble rescheduling at all and will say that they will charge you whether you show up or not. Larger institutions do this too, or they will offer you a makeup week at the end of the semester for a set number of missed lessons. But because these virtuosic kids are always preparing for big things, a lot of teachers find ourselves trying to accommodate in the week that they miss. We don't want them to get off track. Nothing pleases me more than someone who comes regularly and rarely needs to reschedule. Nothing pleases me more than this. If I was paid for all of the time I spend on emails and texts, rescheduling lessons, and setting everything up perfectly for the week, I would be a millionaire by now, and I'm not even kidding. I'm not talking about the initial schedule that I set up. I'm talking about the new schedule with all of the reschedules and the missed lessons and the makeup lessons. It's a lot of time. So I plead with my parents to try and prioritize their slot as much as humanly possible. It helps our relationship. If I find that they've missed too many in a row, I recommend that they try and find another time because clearly that first time is just not working. As a studio parent now, I try to be super flexible with Ava's teacher because I know from personal experience how hard things can be with scheduling. He's also extraordinarily generous with his energy and his time, so I want to be appreciative of that. When he asks if we can have a lesson at 8 a.m., the answer is an immediate yes. We get up early, so that's no problem. If he needs to switch us to an afternoon time one Saturday at conservatory, it might impact our day, but the answer will always be yes because I prioritize his time with her over other extracurricular activities we have, and I know that he's always doing the best he can for her. Let's talk about the sticky subject of payment. Of course you should pay your teacher, but like all bills, maybe sometimes you'll forget. The thing about that is that with a lot of teachers, they are not to be compared with your larger company type bills. They exist off of that paycheck, and even when you pay in advance, they expect it on time, the way you expect your paycheck too. These days, you have the choice to set it up automatically, and for many teachers, this can be ideal. I suggest to parents to make this as easy as possible on yourselves, because missing payments or late payments impact teachers' lives more than you know. Sometimes the thing parents don't think about is that when there are multiple late payments, it can really cause a problem with teachers' bills. And late fees are no joke. Think how you would feel if your employer got you your paycheck a week late and how it might affect the finances in your family. How would you feel going to work that week waiting for your paycheck to arrive? No teacher deserves this stress. I personally believe the issue of payment can be made incredibly easy so that it never impacts your relationship at all. Since payment can be a hot button issue between parent and teacher, make it an auto payment and then you'll never have to speak about it. I hope this gave you some things to consider as you build the foundation of your relationship with your private teacher. Our next episode, episode nine, will center on more complex issues regarding trust, expectations, and the ins and outs of switching studios. I hope you will all listen to this one 
as I feel there are always bumps in every road. But I truly believe with the right tools, we can enhance this very important relationship for our kids just through thoughtful tweaks in our choices and behaviors. Don't miss a beat. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and Podbean. If you have a question or a topic you would like to discuss on Beyond the Triangle, my ears are wide open. Write me at beyondthetrianglepodcast at gmail.com and let's connect. Let's connect.